Brothers and sisters, it is absolutely true. It is the case that we cannot fully comprehend God. It says in Isaiah chapter 46 that there is none like him. There is nothing to which we can compare him. You see, we come before him to adore him because he is not like us. But brothers and sisters, it is also absolutely the case that we can comprehend everything that God has revealed about himself to us in his word. We must not confuse these two. We must not confuse fully comprehending the one who is incomprehensible in his perfections and his majesty and his glory with, oh, well, we just can't understand anything about him really because the reality is he graciously has revealed himself to us in his word. So as we approach the truth of who God is in his very nature, his triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't have to say that because God is so high above us, we cannot understand that he is Trinity and that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one. Because, in fact, he has given us ample evidence in his word that he is exactly that. And it is for us to understand. He didn't put it there so that we wouldn't know. (laughs) He didn't put it there so that we wouldn't understand. He didn't put it there to confuse us. He has revealed himself to us. Furthermore, in studying who God is in his very nature and character... Brothers and sisters, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This is not just lofty theology. This is not just, oh, well, this is something that, you know, we really should just agree to disagree on because nobody can really understand it anyway. Brothers and sisters, this is at the very heart of who God is and what God has done in salvation. And we're going to examine that in detail today when we think about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one. God could not save us in the way that he has described in Scripture if he is not Trinity. And we'll examine that in some detail today. He could not save us in the way that he has revealed of himself in the word of God, if he were not Trinity. That is why throughout millennia, Christians have stood on this doctrine of God, the three in one, because our very salvation Mm -hmm. is at stake. If we get this wrong, we misunderstand How God has saved us. And so it has been hammered out throughout history. We have seen, we have talked about a little in the past, the Council of Nicaea. Here's the creed that came out from the Council of Nicaea. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
Begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, see, not a creature, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic, that means unified church, not Roman Catholic, unified church and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. We've read from the Athanasius Creed in which it just so clearly and so distinctly outlines to us that there are not three gods who are separate gods, but there is one God and that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there is one God. And it just in great detail. Why? Why? It's because looking at the scriptures in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of passages of scripture, these things were affirmed. And as we go on, we're going to be looking today at the, the main texts that support who God is and talking about how this ties in with salvation. But, you know, it's also important to realize as we think about history, you know, and as we read statements of faith such as this, some will say, oh, well, this doctrine wasn't even taught until 325 at, at the Nicene Council. No, 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 no. No, we can go all the, we can go back to Polycarp and Irenaeus and Origen, the statements of the early church fathers, men who actually knew John the Apostle, who affirmed this teaching. When you look at the history of the church, what what was going on from the time the New Testament writings were completed until the Nicene Council? What was going on in the Roman Empire? in relationship to Christians. They were being murdered. They were being persecuted. It was against the law to be a Christian. So guess why they didn't have ecumenical councils where they had 318 bishops travel from all over the Roman Empire and meet in a public place to codify what they all believed because they would have been executed So you see, when you look at history, it's not that these things were not taught, were not believed, and that it's not the teaching of Scripture. It is just there was a time and a place where they all came together and they confirmed what they already believed. It's just like with the canon of Scripture. Oh, well, the men came together and decided which books would be in the Bible. No, they didn't. They came together and they confirmed which books the church of God already recognized to be the word of God. And so it's helpful to look at these original statements because it takes us all the way back and it shows us that this has been the quintessential doctrine of God that has been held to 
to the death by believers throughout the ages. Okay? So it is so important for us. As we break this down according to Scripture, there are three main truths about who God reveals himself as Trinity in the word of God. Three Trinity, three Trinity, three main truths or propositions taught in the word of God about who God is in relationship to his Trinity. Here's the first. And I I want us to, I'm going to repeat this over and over again today so that we can take this with us. Here is the first. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the first statement. The second statement. Each person is fully God. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is fully God. Each person is fully God. The third statement, there is one God. One God. One God. God eternally exists as three persons. That means none of the persons are creatures. None of them were created. Jesus is not a creature. He has always existed with the Father. The Holy Spirit is not a creature. He has always existed with the Father. Each person is fully God. It's not that there is the Father who is the highest and the greatest God, the Almighty, and then Jesus is a lesser God. All three are fully God. And there is one God. It is not that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and there are three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. Now, nothing that I have said in that is illogical. Nothing that I have said in that is unreasonable. There is no contradiction. We are not saying that there are three gods, but they're not three gods. That would be a contradiction. We're not saying that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but one of them did not eternally exist. He was created. That'd be a contradiction. We're not saying each person is fully God, but one of the fully God, fully God persons is less than fully God. Like George Orwell, all animals are created equal, but some are created less equal than others. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) You see, there is no contradiction in this. This can be easily understood. It it, it takes wrapping our minds around it, but we can understand this. And now we ask the question, is this what the scriptures teach? And I propose 100% this is what the scriptures fully teach. This is what the word of God teaches. Now, we're going to start with the Old Testament, because here's another thing that has been said.
Well, surely if God were three persons and he were eternally the Trinity, as we have defined it here, surely God would have fully revealed that to his people in the Old Testament. And so when you look to the Old Testament, you don't see any absolute declaration where God says, I am three in one. So that is evidence that God is not that. Well, first of all, consider this. Did God fully reveal all the details even of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who were in the Old Testament? No, and when you look at scriptures, the apostle says that there was a mystery and that God in the course of time, in due time, revealed it. Look at Galatians chapter 4. So did, did Abraham know as much about Jesus and his work that, that, than us? Does he know as much as us? No, absolutely not. Was he saved? Was he fully saved before God? Absolutely. Read Romans chapter 3 and 4. But has God progressively revealed more of himself to us as the scriptures have unfolded? Yes, he has. And can he do that? Well, which one of us is going to say, no, that's not fair, God. <laughs> no, he's God. He can do it however he wants to do it. But, but look at this, Galatians chapter 4. And let's start with verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come. And. I've got a pregnant wife and I think of fullness of time, you know, and there's going to be a time when the fullness of time has come and we're going to have a baby. We pray for Jojo because the fullness of time hasn't come yet. You know, we pray, Lord, may the fullness of time come before this little one comes into this world. But God in his planning said there was going to be a fullness of time when God, that's God, the father sent forth his son. That's God, the son who was born of a woman and born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if an heir, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Notice here, father, son and Holy Spirit. Revealed in the fullness of time. And here's something as we go through and look at these scriptures. I want us to grasp and I want us to just worship. I want us to worship. I want us to adore God. And that is. When, when you look at theology. The biblical teachings about who God is. You know, it, it, it's funny to me that in seminary they have theology courses called practical theology. Because here's the reality. When you look at the Bible, all theology is practical theology. God doesn't give us a systematic theology in the Bible where he just tells us this. This is the truth. And here's proposition one, two, three, four. And this is truth without putting it in a context of here is truth. And here's what it means to you. And here's how it affects you. And here's how you should think about it. It's always practical in the scriptures. So 
you know, the, 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 the lofty and true doctrine about God that he does not change, that in his character and in his promises, he never fails and he doesn't change. Doctrines like that are taught in the context of passages like in Malachi chapter three, where it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. You see, it's, it's taught in the context of because I don't change, I'm faithful to you unfaithful blackguards. You see, but it's practical. It's practical. God in revealing himself, uh, the Trinity is who God is. And it became manifest as God revealed himself to us to accomplish salvation. That is how it most fully unfolded is not in God saying, "Okay, here's proposition number one. Everybody write this down on your bulletin boards. Here's proposition number two. Go ahead and mark that down now. Here's proposition two. It was revealed to us when Jesus, the son, took on human flesh and was born into this world. And it's revealed to us when Jesus Christ says, I will send and the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin and accomplish these things. You see, it's practical because it's God and it's God revealing himself in all of his purposes in salvation toward us. So, is there any hint in the Old Testament of how God would reveal himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the future? Yes, yes, there is. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter one. And while you're turning there, just remember, we follow an approach of interpreting the scriptures that says, since the New Testament contains the most progressed or the furthest revelation of who God is, it tells us more details about God's plan, about Jesus and his sacrifice and his work, that we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We don't go to the Old Testament and say, oh, well, we don't see, we don't see Jesus, the son of God, come in the flesh in the Old Testament. So the Bible doesn't teach that. No, we go to the the New Testament tells us we don't go back to the Old Testament and say, oh, we should be sacrificing goats on an altar up here because in Leviticus it says that's what we're supposed to do. No, we read the book of Hebrews where it says Jesus has come and he has fulfilled those sacrifices. See, so our hermeneutic is. Read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament because God has revealed more of his plan to us there. But were there hints, were there glimpses in the Old Testament of this? Yes. Even at the very beginning, look at verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that reminds us, of course, we see the the echo in John 1, 1. When he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay. But notice the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And notice this, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There you have God, the father. There you have the spirit. And God said, what did he do? He spoke. Let there be light. What does it tell us in the gospel of John? Jesus Christ is the word who has revealed to us the father And by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created. 
So God spoke, yes, because God is one. But Jesus Christ was the active person in the creation, forming the world, as it says, through him, by him, all things were created. And the Holy Spirit then went forth and brought it all into existence. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together in this, but hinted at here. Notice also, if you jump down to verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who's he talking to? He says, Let us make man in our image. There have been a couple of things that like the Jews debated about. Some said, oh, well, maybe God's talking to the angels. Well, here's the problem. According to Scripture, no angels were directly involved in the creation of the world. Angels didn't create anything. So when God says, let us make, it can't be angels. Some have said, oh, this is a... Uh, I'm looking for the exact phrase, a plural of majesty. You know, kings will say, let us go and dine at such and such a place. Let us go, you know, speaking in the third person, let us go and do such and such. Let us go and do such and such. Well, the problem with that is that's not how the Jews spoke. The Jews, the Jews didn't speak like that. And this was written in Hebrew. No, here's a hint that God is three in one. Let us create man in our image. You see, just a hint of what was to come. Just a hint. Look over to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 and verse 6. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now think about this for a moment. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. At first we might say, oh, well, that's David saying that. That's David saying, your throne, O God. But then, wait a minute. This same one that is being spoken of, God, it now says at the end of verse 7, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. You see that? And in the book of Hebrews, it references back to this and it says, that the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God. That's in Hebrews chapter 1, the beginning of the chapter, and around verse 8. Your throne, O God. That's the Father speaking to the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So God calls the Son 
God. You see, another hint that God is Trinity and not just a single person, for instance, who revealed himself differently throughout history. One of the heresies that has sprung up throughout history is that God is one and he's just revealed himself as the father in the past and then as Jesus and then as the son. But he's just basically putting on different masks or different forms. It's not that there are father, son and Holy Spirit who individually subsist. They have a subsistence, meaning they they exist and, and have a consciousness individually while being yet part of the one being who is God. Okay, and again, we're like, we can't wrap our minds around that. You know know why we can't fully wrap our minds around that? Because there is no one and nothing like God. We can't compare God to anything in this creation. There is nothing like him. We're not like him. But we can affirm these truths because God has revealed it to us. Okay. Look over at Psalm 110. We've just sung one of the most powerful hymns that was ever penned by a human being, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And in that it says that he is David's son, yet David's Lord. David's son, yet David's Lord. That's a reference to Psalm 110. See the Lord's hand in this? I didn't ask Dan to pick that hymn this morning. The Lord was working this together, wasn't he, brother? Psalm 110. And verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a messianic psalm. It's speaking about Christ. Look at the book of Hebrews. It outlines this in great detail. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath and judge among the nations. And so on and so forth. But notice it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In the Synoptic Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus asked the Jewish leaders a question. They believed that this was a messianic psalm, that this was speaking about the Messiah who was to come. And they and he asked the Jews, he said, who is being spoken of here? And how can it be the case that the Messiah will be David's son yet David's Lord. And it says no one could answer him, nor did they challenge him from that point on. Here's what he's pointing out. It is recognized that the son could not be the Lord of the father. So how could the Messiah be a descendant of David, but yet be David's Lord? And and that is because the Messiah is God. He is divine. 
And that's what's saying here. The Lord said to my Lord, the father speaking to the son. And this is. This is, again, a hint here in the Old Testament. Look over uh, to Isaiah chapter 46. I'm sorry, it would be 44, 44, verse 6. That's where I got the 6 in there, 4s and 6s. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer... The Lord, Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last beside me. There is no God. Notice this. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Father speaking to the Son and calling him Lord calling him Lord. Just a, another glimpse, another hint here in the Old Testament of this truth that would be more fully revealed in the New Testament scriptures. So we would expect that when we go to the New Testament, which gives us so many more advanced details about God and his plan and what he had come to accomplish, that we would see more of who he is in this. So let's look at some scriptures. There are actually multiple scriptures where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned together. We've already seen one in Galatians chapter 4. Okay? And let's remind ourselves of these three main truths about the doctrine of the Trinity. That God eternally is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and there is one God. God is eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God and there is one God. There is one God. Let's consider passages where we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned. Rick read for us from Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. And think about this for a moment and just how important this is. Jesus is telling his disciples their marching orders. He he is saying, I am am about to ascend into heaven and I'm not going to be with you in body any longer where you can see me, touch me, hear my voice audibly. I'm not going to be here anymore. And here is what I want you to do. Here are your marching orders. Here's what you are to accomplish. And what does he tell them? He says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That shows his divinity. If he is not God, then he blasphemes. 
Because only God has authority and all authority over heaven and earth. Okay? Then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And what are you to do? Baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is central to the mission of the church. It is central to the understanding of what God has accomplished for us in salvation. Baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unless some say, oh, well, this text shouldn't be in the Bible. This is a text that in every single manuscript available has this exact reading in every single one. It's not left out of a single Greek manuscript. It is not worded differently in a single Greek manuscript. It is fully attested in all the evidence from all the original manuscripts available that quote this passage. And it was quoted by many of the early church fathers before even the Council of Nicaea, early church fathers repeatedly quoted this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one of the most supported and attested to texts in all of Holy Scripture. And it says we're to baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means baptizing with the authority. If you do something in the name of Jesus, you're doing it in Jesus' authority. It's like if, if you showed up in the name of your company, we got people that work at Ranger Boats. If you show up and you gotta go pick up a pick up a some type of product or meet up with a representative from a different company or something, and you show up, you're saying, I'm here from Ranger Boats. What are you saying? I'm here with the authority and with the authority to speak for represent my company. Okay? I'm here in the name of Ranger Boats. You know, I may even have my Ranger Boats, you know, embroidered on my shirt or my cap or whatever else it may be. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means baptizing in the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if these three are not fully God, it would be blasphemy for Jesus to say that you are to baptize in their authority because God alone has authority over all the earth. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But notice again where this, this teaching of the Trinity shines through in the scriptures. What was the context there? It was the context of salvation and what God was going to accomplish in salvation. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing those who had made a profession of faith in Christ, okay? Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's... Let's jump in for a minute at verse 3. It says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, 
if you're reading a text like this, first of all, does any common or proper understanding of the language indicate mm-hmm. that Je- Jesus and the Holy Spirit are exactly the same thing or exactly the, the same person? No, no. It's, they're clearly being spoken of as two persons. And I want to clarify something again. What are our three, what are our three statements about the Trinity? That there are three eternal persons. There are three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are fully God, and there is one God. Three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That these three are fully God, and that there is one God. You just simply can't read the common language spoken in the text as we read it and not come up with the idea that this is teaching that the Holy Spirit is not Jesus and that Jesus is not the Holy Spirit and that the Father is not Jesus and Jesus is not the Father. You see, they're, they're distinct in that, right? Like when Jesus prays to the Father, is he just praying to himself? No, there's a, di- there's a distinction there. But when it says in John 1, 1, that Jesus, at the time the world created, was already God. Clearly, it's teaching that Jesus is equal with the Father. And the scriptures say, such as in Deuteronomy 6, and verse 4, there is one. In Ephesians 4, verse 6. 6, 4, 4, 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Ephesians 4, 6. In Ephesians 4, 6, it says there is one God. So you see, these statements that we're making are based on Scripture. They're how God has revealed himself to us. And notice the context here again, though. It's a practical context. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. No one can acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ properly from the heart unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. Remember, we talked in John about light and that the whole world is darkness unless God shines the light. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 or 4. Which one was it? Where I don't have my notes in front of me on that. Where... um, It says the natural man, chapter 2, the natural man cannot comprehend the things of God in chapter 2. Down toward the end of the chapter, 14. I'm I'm getting 2s, 4s, and 4s, and 6s. The numbers sometimes get mixed up in my head. I know what the passages say, but the numbers get all mixed up. Anybody else like that? But anyway, the fact of the matter, it says that except by the Spirit of God, nobody even can comprehend the things of God. And this is affirming that unless God turns on the light bulb... Shines the light of salvation in. Nobody can see him. They can't understand him. But how has God the Father revealed himself? John chapter 1 in verse 18. It says that Jesus has revealed the Father. Jesus has made him known to us. You see how the Trinity being unfolded for us to understand is in God coming to us to save us and to work salvation. That's how God revealed. Because 
It's who God is. Now notice this. In verse 4, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 12, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. That's Jesus Christ. And that's the primary title for Jesus used in the New Testament. It's used hundreds and hundreds of times. And just as an interesting note, that Greek word, kurios, Lord, which is the main title for Jesus used in the New Testament, that he is Lord, that is the Greek word that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that the apostles had, that is the word that translated the divine name Yahweh. The Holy Spirit chose for the New Testament to be written with Jesus being given the title Lord and it having a direct connection to the Greek Old Testament that the apostles used in which Yahweh is called Lord. There's no coincidence there. It's an evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. That he is one with the Father. And so as there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There's Jesus. And there are diversities of activity, but it is the same God. There's God the Father. Theos. Theos, in Greek, is a primary name for God the Father used in the New Testament. We do have... Several instances where Jesus is called Theos. Primarily, he is Kyrios, Lord. And the Father is Theos, God. So when we see the three together like this, it is clearly distinguishing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you think God wants us to recognize that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son? Yes. <laughs> There are three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now look over to uh, 2 Corinthians, into the chapter, into the chapter, into the book. Very end of the book, 2 Corinthians, in verse 14. Do we need any air flowing in here? Is it just me that feels like the air is a little bit still? If ever, the, yeah, I was wondering about the air conditioning, but hey, if I'm the only one that's warm up here, you guys are sitting down there and I'm standing up here and it's, you know what they say, hot air rises. So I'll leave that up to you as to whether or not you're comfortable or whether you'd like the air conditioner turned on so we have a little more cool air flowing. Notice this in verse 14. The grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. What do we see there? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Would it make any sense to say this if they were all the exact 
same subsistence, the exact same person. And when we say person, we don't mean that they are all human beings. Okay? So person is not necessarily the best word, but what we're trying to indicate is that there there is a distinction in that they have subsistence. They can think independently even while agreeing as one okay again though what we're looking at is what the scriptures just simply clearly teach is the father is not the son the son is not the father the father and son are not the holy spirit you know these things are clear it's just going to reach a point where all we can do is worship and say god i am not you and you're worthy of my worship because you are so high above me okay And this, no, this is not, you know, the woman that did the trip and it's metaphorically described as, you know, going to Jupiter or whatever else. And she's so high above me, you know, like that popular song several years back. No, this is God who is high above us. God, who is the only one like him. Let's pause here for just a minute. You know, all types of analogies have been People have tried to put it in analogy to understand who God is. You know, it's like it's like water. Water can be ice, it can be uh, liquid form, or it can be vapor. So God is like that, three in one. The problem is if you if you make that a direct analogy, you're a heretic. <laughs> because the same particles of water cannot be ice, vapor and liquid at the same time. So if you look at that as the analogy, then you hold to the modalism heresy that God just appears in different forms at different times. See, the reality is there is nothing in creation that is like God. And so we just bow down and worship. That's why we, we can't worship anything in creation because there is nothing like him. He is unique. And you would expect that because he's the creator. He's the one who made it. I mean, you know, people make robots. Are robots exactly like the creator in every aspect? No, nobody can make a robot that is exactly like them. A human being with a soul that can interact with God and created in the image of God. Nobody can make a robot like that. They can make some freaky robots. <laughs> I've heard robots debating with guy with a guy once and tell, and the robot saying, when we take over the world, you all are going to be in zoos. All right? And that kind of creeps me out a little bit. <laughs> but you can't make a robot that is exactly like you. God cannot replicate himself. Or he would not be the Almighty. So we shouldn't we shouldn't expect to to be able to put God in a box and say he's exactly like water or exactly like an egg, you know, yolk shell. Again, the shell is not one with the yolk and the white. They're not one in the sense that God is one. So you see, it, it breaks down. Every analogy breaks down because only God is God. And thus he is worthy of worship. You see, you see how important this doctrine of the Trinity is, because if we 
If we begin to tweak it, all of a sudden, we make God like the creation. And we begin to worship something that is less than God. You see how important this is to our worship. And, and those in the cults, they, they always get hung up on, that doesn't make sense to me, so what do they do? They make God more like them. It's one of our biggest flaws as human beings is we want to make God like us. We want God to submit to us. Brother Dan and I were talking about you know, people who say God would never violate the will of man. What are they saying? They're saying they want to be in charge. Invictus. I am in control of my destiny. But God says that he sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs. At those who would want to throw off restraint and the bonds which he has established. And he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry in his wrath. So here's the reality. God is not us. He is above us. And praise God, there are times when we want to do something and God steps in. And he, he changes our will. Because if God doesn't step in and change our will, we're all going to hell. Amen. If God doesn't step in and give us a, a new heart and take the heart of stone out of us, if he doesn't give us new eyes and open our eyes, if he doesn't give us new ears so that we have ears to hear, we are doomed. And even at, even at the practical level, brothers and sisters, Abraham lies about his wife and says, she's my sister because he's afraid that they're going to like kill him and steal his wife. And... What ends up happening is God comes to Abimelech and basically, you know, says the woman that you have here is his wife. And Abimelech's like, oh, don't kill me, Lord. I didn't know. Now, the Lord prevented Abimelech and says specifically, I prevented you from sleeping with her. What would have normally been his will or the will of the men with him when a pretty lady comes in town, you hook up with her. That's just, that was the way they operated. That's the way they operated. And God specifically says, I kept you from doing what you would have wanted to do otherwise. God changed his will. And God was gracious in that. Okay. Side note, but that was kind of an illustration of we can't put God in a box in something like comparing him to creation with the Trinity and analogies because he is, he is not like anything we see around us. He is above it all. He is above it all. Well, a couple more passages in the New Testament. We're, we're wrapping this up as we go. Again, what are our propositions and if you're on our church facebook group page i posted an article there which outlines some of this in detail as well um, i recommend the resource carm christian apologetics and resource ministry and if you google that articles on the trinity you'll find lots of good helpful information there 
including a listing of some of the statements about the Trinity by the early church fathers who lived even before the Council of Nicaea, okay? And I posted that article as well on our Facebook page. But our three propositions, God is three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. None of them were created. They all existed with one another before the world was even formed. All three are fully God and there is one God. We've already looked at Galatians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, the three are mentioned again. I'm not going to have you turn there, but it mentions in a listing of, of multiple things, one faith, one baptism, it mentions the three in that. And it says there is one Lord, there is one God, there is one Spirit. At the... Beginning of First Peter, First Peter chapter one. It says here, First Peter chapter one, verse two, that the persons being written to are elect. According to the foreknowledge of God, the father and sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the Trinity. But notice again the context salvation. And the different roles father, son and Holy Spirit play in salvation. So let's mention something else. That is oftentimes used to try and deny this doctrine of the Trinity. And that is this. Jesus will make statements, and we'll see some of them as we go through the book of John, such as in chapter 5 and chapter 10. He'll make, he'll make statements to the effect of that I do nothing in and of myself. I do what the Father shows me to do. And so some people will point to that and say, oh, see, Jesus is a lesser being than the Father. The problem is, if you keep reading like in John chapter 5, Jesus is actually proving that he is equal in authority with the Father, ultimately, because he says, I will raise the dead. Something that they believed only the Father could do. Okay, so in those passages, if you really read the flow of them, you understand that there's this sense in which it's three in one. Jesus is equal in his essence with the Father, but at the same time, the activities that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do in the work of salvation are different activities. So the Bible says the Father sent the Son. And the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. It says here the Father elected us, predestined us to salvation, that the Spirit sanctifies and then the blood of Jesus Christ is what saves. So we can ask this. Did the father die for us? No, the father didn't die for us. Jesus did. So they have different roles. But the fact that they have different roles, does that make them different in their essence? Think about it this way. In human relationships, do we have different roles? 
Okay, Rick and I are elders here. Any of the rest of you elders of this church? We have different roles than you, don't we? Does that make us more human than you? Does that make us more, more created in the image of God than you? No, you see, in our essence, we hold things equally in common that all human beings hold in common, and our role does not change that. It just means we have different functions that we engage in. And even, to a certain extent, in certain contexts, different degrees of authority. That doesn't change who, who you all are or we are, does it? So, none of the statements in the Bible where Jesus says that he looks to the Father and just does what the Father shows him, or that he was sent by the Father, none of those statements in any way, shape, or form undermine the teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because what we're saying is that Jesus is not the Father, and that Jesus has engaged in some different activities than the Father has, but yet they are one God. Not two gods. And that John chapter 1, clearly Jesus is not just another creature who was formed. But he is the one who was with the Father even at the very beginning. And who created. Okay? Does that make sense? We call this the... Distinction between the ontological and the functional aspects of the Trinity. Ontos means existence or being. They are one in ontos, in economy, how they work things out, what roles they have, what activities that they do, who sends who. They are distinct. And that's glorious. <laughs> Again, we worship that God, that God could do that, that he is so complex, that he is so beautiful. God has a relationship with God. And you know what? God didn't need to create us because he was lonely because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in unity and harmony before the world even was made. He didn't need us. He didn't need anything. And you see, this doctrine of the Trinity touches on that as well. And if you start denying the doctrine of the Trinity, it has implications for that and God's relationship with himself through all eternity as well. Okay. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are part God. Is that right? All three are fully God. Oh, that means we worship three gods. Is that right? There is one God. There is one God. We've touched on various things throughout the past couple of years in my preaching and teaching and through Rick's teaching. We've looked at Jesus in detail. I just want to I want to close us with one passage of scripture that shows that the Holy Spirit is himself God, because one of the things that those in the cults very quickly uh, deny is the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit. So cults like the Jehovah Witnesses say 
that the Holy Spirit is just the power or force of God. That's just God acting. But the Holy Spirit does not have a consciousness. The Holy Spirit is not a person in the Godhead with subsistence. The Holy Spirit is just the force or power of God. We're not going to go down through the list. I'll I'll post some things again on Facebook if you guys want to research this fully. But there are dozens of places in the Bible where it says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke to the apostles. The Holy Spirit commanded them. The Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus and the Father. All of these show that the Holy Spirit is a person in the Godhead with a subsistence that is rational, that can think, and is not just the power or the force of God. But the Bible does say that it's the Holy Spirit of God, of course, because God is one. The Holy Spirit is one with God. Of course it would say it's the Holy Spirit of God. It's not the Holy Spirit of Ryan Butler (laughs) or the Holy Spirit of the Apostle Paul. Okay? So these passages all show this, and there's much evidence for that. But the Holy Spirit is directly called God in the Scriptures. Look over at Acts chapter 5. We see in Acts chapter 5 that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. And when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you are lying to God. And again, the implication is if you can if you can lie to someone or something, that someone or something is capable of thought and understanding. You wouldn't you wouldn't say something like I lied to the electricity in these walls. See, the Jehovah Witnesses say that the Holy Spirit is just the force or power of God. It's kind of like electricity. That's just a force or a power is electricity. Can electricity think? Can electricity be grieved? No, but it can grieve you. <laughs> Stick your finger in there sometime, you'll find out. But it wouldn't make any sense to say I lied to the electricity. No, we wouldn't use terminology like that. When someone can be lied to, it's because they're a someone, they're not an it. They're a someone. I lied to a rock. No, that doesn't make any sense. I lied to that tree. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You're just talking to yourself. That's all you're doing. (laughs) You're not lying to anything. You're talking to yourself. You can only lie to a, a being that has consciousness. Okay? So in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they do bad stuff. They lie. And God strikes them dead. Ooh, serious. So, verse 1, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? See that? The Holy Spirit is just the power of God. You can't just... It wouldn't make any sense to say I lied to the power of God. Lied to the Holy Spirit 
and kept back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was not it your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see that? If you lie to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. But, but you don't lie to something that's just an inanimate force or a power. So the Holy Spirit is not just an inanimate force or power. The Holy Spirit is God. God is three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three are fully God, and there is one God, is the teaching of Scripture. And brothers and sisters, this is the way God has revealed himself in salvation. If you don't believe those three propositions as outlined from the Scriptures, you cannot make sense of what God has done in salvation. You can't. Because you cannot say that the Father sent the Son... Because it just it would just be the father coming. It would just be the father turning himself into the son and coming. And he would just be sending himself. See, it it doesn't make any sense. You can't make any sense of propitiation. Propitiation is the, the is the teaching in Scripture that we need to be reconciled to God. Because we are we are at odds with God and that in propitiation, the son came and he satisfied the wrath of the father against sin. So we could be saved. You could not have propitiation if you don't have. Father, son and Holy Spirit. You cannot have the father and the son sending the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit coming to convict the world of sin and to proclaim and speak of Jesus if they're all just the same person. It doesn't make any sense. The Bible never says that the Father died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. But while he's on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represented in the baptism of Jesus. There is Jesus being baptized, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit came down in the form of a dove and alighted upon Jesus. You cannot have that if you do not have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible clearly says you are to worship the one God alone and you're not to have any other gods in his presence. And if you say, well, there are three, but they're all God, then you're an idolater and you're worshiping false conception of deity because you now have three gods, not one God, you see. So when we walk down through this doctrine of the Trinity You can see why it has been such a central pillar of the Christian faith since God has revealed it to us because salvation is connected to this. And brothers and sisters, one final thought. It it has been said in this way. If you've got a close friend and you slap your friend upside the face, you get mad and slap your friend in the face. Jordan, don't get any ideas. Daniel, slap you back. All right. If you slap your friend upside the face, the consequences of doing that are not going to be quite as great as if you manage to get close to Donald Trump and slap him upside the face. 
Why is that? There's this group called the Secret Service. And they're going to be all over you. And you're going to go to prison. You will go to prison. But if it's your friend and you're getting a little tiff with them and slap them beside the face, you're probably not going to go to prison. Don't do it, though. <laughs> but you see, the, 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 the dignity, the authority of the person affects the severity of the crime. When we sin against God, we sin against an infinitely righteous being. It's not like when we sin against one another. Okay? There is no creature who could pay the price for our sins. It had to be God coming in the flesh. So those who deny that Jesus is divine in equality, in essence, with the Father, and say, oh, he's just a creature, he's a lesser God. No creature could pay the penalty against an infinite God. Only the infinite God becoming a creature and paying that penalty could suffice. So you see, if we deny the Trinity, we deny the biblical teaching about salvation. That's why I have preached this message for us today. Also so that we would worship our God. Because he is not us. We are not him. But praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has reached out to us while we were in the sewer of our sin and he has given us life and brought us into his family and we worship him and we worship him alone for who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had. May we be glorying in you, worshiping you and understanding you properly according to your word. We ask that you'll bless the fellowship time, bless the food that you have provided for us and may you receive the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.